Now hear God's holy word, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ from John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And then in verse 25, he says, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to my Father, for my Father is greater than I. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and we give you thanks on this day, especially for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We praise you for his comfort, for his guiding, for his leading, for his conviction, for the way that he strengthens us and encourages us, for the way he animates us to good works. Father, today, fill us all in this place with your Holy Spirit, that doubt may flee, that anxiety may flee, that, that all worry and, and everything that would diminish the power of the gospel today, that it might vanish. Father, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here, several of you have a, a little cough this morning. I'm going to join with you in that chorus of coughs, I bet, uh, sooner or later. I've, I feel great. I just have this little cough that won't go away. So forgive the distraction ahead of time. Uh, I would bet that every one of us has had the experience of driving down the road lost in thought with the radio on and perhaps consumed by worry over challenges we're facing or struggles we're in the midst of. And a song comes on the radio that takes us right back to when we were 20 years old or maybe 16 years old. You know, back when you didn't have any problems, when you had everything figured out and everything was right with the world, back when you didn't have as many responsibilities, when not so many people were looking to you uh, as if you had the answers. And the song just sucks you back into this simpler time, a time where everything made sense. Furthermore, a time where the world was different. Not only, not only were you different, but the world was different. The world was a place where people had greater moral fiber, you know, back then, whenever back then was. A time of more honesty and respect. You know, when men were men and women were women and children were seen but not heard and all these, all these good things. Uh, that's, that's the power of nostalgia. It grips us and it pulls us back to remember a time uh, in a point of our lives where we've forgotten or we've glossed over many of the bad things. Many, many, of, the, many of the sad parts we, we, kind of, we kind of gloss over and we emphasize and we cherish the highlights. When the truth is when, I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself, when I was 16 or even when I was 20, I was likely way more confused and way more worried then than I am today. And, and in those times where we weren't worried, we should have been. <laughs> Perhaps we were way more confident, overconfident, way more arrogant than, than we should have been. Maybe we should have been a little bit more concerned. 
But it's funny how nostalgia paints things a little fuzzy, a little blurry when it comes to the bad parts, and a little too shiny when it comes to the good things. That's why it's so easy to talk about the good old days and why when things aren't going quite right, we feel this desire, this overwhelming craving to get back to the way things used to be. Back when everything was nearly perfect. You know, back then, back before everything changed. Nostalgia is such a powerful force that marketers can't help but use it. Advertisers are always using nostalgia. Marketers are constantly repackaging our childhoods and selling it back to us over and over and over. You walk down a toy aisle, you'll see Care Bears and My Little Pony and G.I. Joe and Transformers. Why? That's because those are the things my generation played with, and now we want our children to have the same experience, but it's not, it's not the same. There are hardly any new movies, hardly any original ideas, just retreads and rehashes of, of old movies and old TV shows from our childhoods over and over and over. We're running out of nostalgia, almost. Uh, we see the force of nostalgia in politics. One Christian political commentator I read recently, he suggested that the two major political parties are simply fighting over which period of the past was the better golden age, whether it was the Great Society of 1965 or the Reagan Revolution of 1981. Everyone wants to go backwards. That's settled. It's, it's settled that we all want to go to the past. We're just arguing over which decade we want to go back to. This is consistent across the board, and it, it should come as no surprise because paganism is always pulling humanity back into the dark past, back into the, the, the dark night of idolatry and ignorance and tribalism. Paganism has no eschatology. Paganism has no story of the future. There is no future. There is no goal to history. It's just the circle of life, one thing after another after another. And so often, you see, among pagans, those who are most consistent, pagans worship their ancestors. Why do we, why do we worship our ancestors? Well, uh, we fear that if we have conflict or disaster today, it's because we have made the ancestors angry their disembodied spirits lurk among us, and we must not disappoint our ancestors for fear of retribution. The message of the Bible has always been countercultural to that and remains countercultural. The Bible calls us not back to the past, to the darkness of idolatry, the darkness of tribalism. The Bible calls us forward to a glorious future. And God is always calling us to go and leave and start new things, new worlds. It starts in the beginning when God says a man shall leave his father and mother and go cleave to his wife. That's the pull. That's the, that's the arc of history. That's the trajectory of history. Go, leave, start something new. Leave home. Don't have four generations living under one tent with one patriarch or one matriarch over everyone. And so God says to Abraham, come out, Abraham, leave your father and leave your father's idols. God's Holy Spirit is always pushing his people into new realities and into new situations. He moves mankind from glory to glory with the purpose of maturing humanity and growing humanity up into an acceptable bride for his son. And so we don't hang out in the past that we've been delivered from. Uh, 
We don't camp out in the darkness of Sodom or, or Egypt. We don't look back to Sodom. We don't look back to Egypt. We don't even look back to the Garden of Eden for that matter. Because each time he rescues his people, each time he saves his people, he delivers them to a new world with new possibilities and he blocks the pathway back. We can't get back to the garden. He's put angels there with flaming swords. You can't go backwards. You got to go forward. So when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God doesn't say, okay, we're going to start all over. We're going to try this again. Okay, let's everybody go back to their places. Let's, let's set the tree back up where it belongs and let's get rid of the serpent and let's reboot everything. No, he moves them out of the garden into a land where they're to have new responsibilities. They're to be fruitful and multiply now in the land outside the garden. After the flood, after God judges the world with a flood, he brings Noah into a new covenant with new responsibilities and new authority. We could say, well, here's Noah now with his little family. Maybe we could get back to the garden, but that's not what he does. It's a new creation. And so he does with Abraham and with Moses and Joshua and the judges and all the way through the time of the kings. Each time the covenant is renewed, it's, it's uh, resurrected to a new phase of glory, to something new and wonderful that he's never done before with the expectation of, of new responsibilities and new wonders and new beauties. You never get to go backward and you never get to stay there. Th things may revert for a time. There may be some judgment. There may be some decreation, but that's just before a new world is introduced. And so at each major point that God moves humanity forward, he establishes it at the big points, at the big uh, mile markers, he sets up a new sanctuary, a new point of connection between heaven and earth, a new point for fellowship and covenant renewal with his people, a new connection between his throne and our hearts. And, and as he does this, as he sets up these new sanctuaries, certain things tend to happen. Uh, that show his pleasure and, and show his presence in that sanctuary. There's always wind and fire and smoke each time he sets up a new sanctuary. When he set up the Garden of Eden as a sanctuary for Adam and Eve, the Spirit blew. He blew the Spirit into the nostrils of Adam. There was the filling and life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that brooded over the waters of creation now is breathed into Adam. And then he lit his altar in the, uh, in the, uh, in the garden with his two flames. Uh, you've heard me say this before, but it, the, the man is called Ish, which means flame. And the woman is Isha, which is the feminine form of the word. The two flames on the altar uh, of the Garden of Eden, that sanctuary were Adam and Eve themselves. And so the garden is where he's going to meet with and commune with his people before the fall. Later on, he calls Abraham to come out and uh, enact the conquest of the land of Canaan. And Abraham does that by going around and establishing little sanctuaries, little altars, each a little oasis of worship to the God of creation. And you remember in Genesis 15 where Abraham spreads the parts of the animals before the Lord and the Lord's torch, his flame, and the heat of a burning oven move between the pieces of the sacrificial animals. And so God blessed and sanctified and consecrated Abraham's altar. 
Well, this all happens again at the dedication of the tabernacle. The glory of Yahweh appears in a cloud to all the people and fire comes out from the cloud and consumes the sacrifice on the altar. We heard in our lesson that Tim read from Numbers this morning that uh, the the spirit at the altar filled 70 elders um, and they all prophesied. The spirit filled them and they start to prophesy and Joshua was put out by this. Joshua was zealously protecting Moses' honor as the special anointed messenger of Israel, the special prophet. And Joshua says, make them stop. And Moses says, oh, that all the children of Israel would prophesy thus. Well, Moses' prayer was answered on the day of Pentecost that uh, all, of, all of the children of Israel, all of Yahweh's people would be prophets and that Yahweh would put his spirit into all of them. Much later, when it comes time to dedicate Solomon's temple, again, God's glory cloud comes. He fills the place in such a way that the priests can't even perform their duties within the temple. And there's fire on the altar for over 100,000 sacrifices on that day. Do you see and are you following the progression from garden to Abraham, to tabernacle, to temple. Each time a new sanctuary is established, God shows his pleasure and his presence through glory, through fire, through the sound of a rushing wind. Every time he shows up and he says, this is where I will meet with man. This is where we will renew covenant. This is where I will have fellowship with you. And so... It comes as no surprise after Jesus ascends to be with the Father and he sits down at the right hand of the Father on his throne and it comes time to dedicate a new temple. It comes time to consecrate a new altar. There's a new sanctuary, the new place of contact between heaven and earth. And what do we see on the day of Pentecost? The very same things. God's Holy Spirit shows up once again as a rushing mighty wind. The mighty wind fills the whole house where the apostles were staying. And, and just as the tabernacle couldn't contain God's glory, just as the temple couldn't contain God's glory, so these new temples, the apostles couldn't contain the spirit that was put in them. And they spilled out into the streets as the words of the spirit spilled out of their mouths and they preached the gospel in all the languages of the world. God lights a new fire on the day of Pentecost on a new altar as flames of fire sit on each one of their heads. Just as he does every time he establishes a new sanctuary throughout history. He now, on the day of Pentecost, says of the church, this is where you will meet me. Right here, the church. This is where you will offer worship and sacrifices acceptable to me. Here is where we will renew covenant together. If you want fellowship with the Father, you're only going to find it in the church. We're not reaching backward. We're not going back to the garden. We're not going back to Abraham's altars. We're not going back to the tabernacle. We're not going back to the temple. This is the temple. This is the sanctuary. This is the altar. This is where we meet with God. And this is where we fellowship. So uh, God says, I'm doing a new thing here. And this isn't a contingency and this isn't plan B. I love this thing that I'm doing, the Lord shows us. This is what is best. 
So these events on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 are what we celebrate today. And it really is. Next to probably Christmas and Easter, Pentecost is right up there with my favorite days on the church calendar. Because, and you could say, well, it's the birthday of the church. And I could kind of agree with you on that. That it's the, it's the time where we uh, set aside and mark this day to focus on the person and the work of God's Holy Spirit. Not just what he did on that day in Acts chapter 2, but how he continually abides in and through the church throughout history and moving forward. There are always so many things to cover and so many things to to say and things we could talk about today, like the filling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the convicting, the leading of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And at some point soon, I'm just going to take six or eight weeks and we're going to cut, we're just going to spend time talking about the Holy Spirit. But to organize and and kind of summarize some thoughts for us on this Pentecost Sunday, I'm going to focus in on just a few benefits and a few of the realities of the continuing work of the Holy Spirit and the amazing gift that he is to the church, to the body of Christ. And my hope is when you walk out of here today, you do so with the comfort and the awareness of this truth that the Holy Spirit is the continuing presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. And that you know that it's the Holy Spirit, it's God's Holy Spirit who makes all things alive, he makes all things real, he makes all things new, he makes all things one. And I'm gonna run through those things really uh, briskly, I pray today. So to the first foundational point, and what I want you to grasp and, and kind of wrap yourself around, that the Holy Spirit is the continuing presence of the Lord Jesus in the church. We're apt to think when we read the Bible stories to our children, when we read the Old Testament, we think what the Father did in the world was a long time ago. Uh, It's so distant that we almost can't even think about it being real. We kind of think in terms of, you know, even the movie, The Ten Commandments, is kind of ancient. You know, Charlton Heston is, is Moses, and it's so distant, and it's so, it's at such a remove. It's all amazing. It's all wonderful. Uh, but the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, it, 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 doesn't all, it almost doesn't feel real in some ways. The words of Jesus are nearer to us and so powerful, the words of our Lord, but it's still as if there's this cultural and chronological veil between us and the words of Jesus at times. It feels very tough. And of course, even the apostles admit some of these sayings, that things that Jesus say are very, very difficult. And then when it comes to the spirit, well, the spirit did amazing things through the church and the apostles. But again, it's all behind us. So the work of the Father is so distant. The words of Jesus are, are, are at a remove, it feels. And the Spirit, well, he did amazing things back then. But what, what are we doing today? And it feels like, and it can seem like, we're just kind of muddling through as 21st century Christians. But the Christian faith is not merely a museum of things that happened once upon a time. 
Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to be the continuing, abiding, leading, powerful presence of God in the church so that the acts of God in the Old Testament aren't foreign and distant, but that they're real and alive and that the words of Jesus, as if they spring off the page and ignite our hearts and our minds and propel us to obey him and and warm our hearts with affection for the things that Jesus says. And that the Holy Spirit is not just some distant, strange force, but that he is here now among us, in you, with us, between us, binding us together, pulling us together with cords of affection and love and fellowship and uniting us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, leading us all in the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ even right this very moment. So to think that the Spirit is somehow removed or distant or in the past is to resist the work of the Spirit. It's to ignore His work. We have to come to a full realization that He is here, He is present, He is with us, and His presence brings the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ to us. And let me explain what I mean by that. Remember, as Jesus' ministry was drawing to His close, He told his disciples, I'm going to have to go away from you. I'm going to ascend to the right hand of my father. And he does bodily, physically. He takes his throne. And from there, Jesus rules over all creation. And so Jesus tells his apostles, this is good for you. This is what is best for you. He even said to his men, he said, you're going to do greater things than I. How can we do greater things than Jesus? Well, because of the way that they multiply and spread and influence and power and force all over the face of the earth. And and so Jesus says, I can't be with you physically everywhere at once. I can't lead you physically. I can't be with you all at the same time. So I'm going to leave and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who can be everywhere at once and with you all at the same time. And it's my spirit who's going to carry on the work that I have started. And so the Holy Spirit carries on the ministry of the Lord Jesus personally with his church. Here are some of the things, uh, a couple of things that I read just a few minutes ago. And here's some of what Jesus says in John's gospel. Hear Jesus. He says in 1526 of John's gospel, when the comforter comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You see there, this is continuing bearing witness to the works and the majesty and the excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ comes through the work of the Spirit. In chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away, For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He does the work. It's the spirit who does the work. It's not up to us to do the convicting. It's not us to do the judgment. It's the spirit who does these things. And again, continuing that sharp-edged ministry of Jesus in the world. And then in 1613, Jesus says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, 
But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's not going to come and contradict the work of Jesus. He's going to come and continue the work of Jesus. Jesus himself, you know, was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was strengthened by and comforted by the Holy Spirit. And before he leaves, Jesus was in a room with his apostles and he breathes on them. It's always been that curious scene to me. He, he blows on them as if this is just kind of a down payment of what's coming on the day of Pentecost. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus transfers to them the power and the authority and the strength he drew from the Spirit. So tightly are the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit connected that Paul almost speaks of them interchangeably. In Romans 8, Paul writes, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So, so Paul uses the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, those two terms, it's, it's interchangeably. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't have his own personality. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have his own work or his own position among the triune Godhead, but they're so in, in lockstep with each other. The, the son is in the father and the spirit is in the son. They're so tightly connected that, that Paul doesn't attempt to pull them apart. The spirit of God is the spirit of Christ. In Galatians 4, 6, you know, you know this one, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I love that. God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, and then you cry, Abba, Father. It's as if here is the Trinity uh, sharing love and fellowship and union, and then, and then the spirit is sent into our hearts to sweep us up into that work of the Holy Spirit. We participate in the work and the love and the fellowship of the Trinity by God's Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter also speaks of the Spirit of Christ in his epistle. So, so here's the point. God's Holy Spirit is sent to the church and that marks the continuation of the work of our Lord Jesus on earth in his church. The Spirit will work just as Jesus did. He instructs, he leads, he protects, he guides us into truth so that when we preach, we preach Jesus's words and not our own. It is by the spirit that we access the life of Jesus and that we share in the continuing work of Jesus himself. In worship, we ascend to the heavenlies in the spirit. We worship in the spirit. We are fed by Jesus at his table, by his body and his blood, spiritually, capital S, by the Spirit. And people of God, this is how in, in all of the muddle and confusion and difficulty and worry and anxiety of life, this is how the Spirit is present with us right now, today, in this place. Jesus is present by and through His Spirit. His Spirit is in you. His spirit is with us. The work of God to redeem humanity, to grow us up and to transform creation is not back there in the past somewhere. It is present. It is here with us through the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church. We are his temple. 
We are his dwelling place. We are the living stones of his living sanctuary. And when this grips you, when this hits you, that, that, that means that he hasn't left us to ourselves. He hasn't, he hasn't left us to figure out everything on our own. He hasn't left us to our own strength, our own wisdom. He is here with you and with me, continuing to push us forward, not back. The energy and the power and the forward motion toward maturity is the work of God's Holy Spirit. And so there are four ways that he works. And I said, I'm going to hit these pretty briskly because I see the smoke of chicken on the grill and it's making me hungry. So I promise to move quickly. Uh, The spirit is the one who makes all things alive. Repeatedly, the scriptures testify that it's God's spirit, the breath, the wind of God who who gives life to all things. In in Isaiah 42, listen to this. Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, Yahweh gives breath to the people on the earth and spirit to those who walk in it. How does anyone have life? How does anyone draw breath? How does anyone wake up in the morning after sleeping all night? Who stirs them up? Who puts breath in their lungs? It's only God's Holy Spirit who gives life at all. It is the Spirit who gives life. And and, um, I've commented before that both the Hebrew word for spirit and the Greek word for spirit is so curious. They both mean breath. They both mean wind. They both mean spirit. Uh, it's, and even in, in various languages, like esprit de corps uh, or, or a, an, in a spirit, to be spirited is to be alive, uh, is to be bubbling over with life. Our breath is our life. You stop breathing and you die. The spirit of God is the breath of God that God breathed into man and that we breathe back out. As the spirit gave life to man, the spirit also gave life to all living creatures. The Spirit breathes upon the earth and things move and grow and bud and flower and reproduce. Animals are animated and guided by the Holy Spirit. If there is life anywhere, it is because God's Holy Spirit has put it there. And if the Holy Spirit withdraws his care, if he ever withdraws his life-giving work, we die We cannot continue to exist without God's Holy Spirit hovering over and maintaining life on planet Earth. We read Psalm 104 this morning. I want to read it back to you and pay attention to this part. Uh, This psalm is a psalm of, of God's care over all creation. And it says, these all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. It's this life that he gives to all things, this life that he gives in a special way to his people, which the Bible also describes as power. The prophet Micah says, I truly am full of power by the spirit of Yahweh. The spirit is the source of strength and movement. And and he moves his people in a special favorable way. And those whom he moves in such a way are more strong and, and more powerful. As Isaiah 31 says, the Egyptians are man and not God. And their horses are flesh 
and not spirit. Whenever the Bible makes a statement about the differences between flesh and spirit, the emphasis is not on the contrast between the material and the immaterial. It's not on the, on the contrast between what's real and what's not real. The contrast is between the weakness of flesh and the strength of the spirit, which brings us to the next proposition. Not only does the spirit make all things alive, but the spirit makes all things real. And by real, I mean really, really real. The spirit makes all things real. One way that we speak about the work of the spirit, or we speak about the work of uh, the spiritual realm in general, is we use the word spiritual as a synonym for unseen, or we use it as a synonym for non-corporeal. Spiritual things we think are things you can't touch or see or confirm. Spiritual things are just kind of inside you or in the air. And so when we read that our warfare is spiritual or this or that is a work of the spirit, we think that what we're saying is that, well, that has nothing to do with hard realities. That has nothing to do with absolutes. And so when we say that the church's activity in the world is spiritual, or that Jesus has a spiritual victory over his enemies, we think what we're saying is that, well, there's no concrete results of those things. There's no real effects of those things. We just kind of have to hope that they're true. They have no impact on creation. We think spiritual things and the work of the spirit must be the opposite of concrete, real, objective, incarnational things. Uh, we think spiritual means kind of subjective or emotional or intellectual, but not real in any sense. But that's never how the Bible speaks about the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is always and consistently engaged in the created order. When the Spirit rushes onto Samson, Samson doesn't intellectually slay the Philistines. He, he doesn't uh, uh, symbolically slay the Philistines. He really and truly caves in their domes with a, a jawbone of a donkey. Uh, this, is, this is the Spirit's work, and it's real. When the Spirit fills the artisans who worked on the tabernacle, remember the Spirit of God came upon Bezalel, the artist and the architect of the tabernacle, there, the Spirit moves on these artisans who craft and build the tabernacle and they're engaged in real artistic craft, expression, and work. The Spirit, remember, hovered over the waters at creation. The Spirit blows back the waters of the flood, revealing a new creation in the days of Noah. And so the Spirit continues to remake creation so that creation becomes all that it was meant to be. The creation as we see it now is warped, it's hardened, it's blurred, it's defaced by sin. But the Spirit works in the world to enhance it, to give it relevance and meaning again. The Spirit works to make creation fruitful, to deliver the creation and the created order from all that corrupts it. The present creation is beautiful, but it's beautiful like a fine instrument that isn't being played properly right now. Sort of like a violin or a cello is beautiful beautiful instrument, but the spirit picks it up and he plays the music that's supposed to be played upon it. And then the instrument becomes even more lovely when it plays the music it's designed to play. The spirit puts the creation to the use that it was intended for. The spirit makes all things real. So then those who live in shadows and those who live in dark places, who have warped sensibilities, who have twisted God's good creation, they aren't living in reality. They're living with a 
sad, muddy reflection. And so God's Holy Spirit is at work making all things real, making all things solid, lasting, concrete. Spiritual is not a synonym for not really. It's not. Put that away forever and don't ever use that again. Spiritual doesn't mean not really. Spiritual refers to something that is powered by the strength of the Holy Spirit to enact real change upon the creation and exercise dominion over it and to use the the creation for what it was intended. The third thing that the Spirit does is the the Spirit makes all things new. The Spirit not only creates... He recreates, he refreshes. Peter preaches in Acts chapter three, he says, repent and turn to the Lord so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing come from the spirit of the Lord. Moses described the renewal of Israel this way in Deuteronomy. Moses says, Israel was in a dry land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. And so his spirit encircled him He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So Yahweh alone led them. The Holy Spirit is like an eagle who hovers over her chicks, like the Spirit hovered over creation at the beginning. And this hovering, this brooding over creation continues. You see the Holy Spirit as a dove brooding over the waters of Jesus's baptism. Uh, So the Spirit not only creates in the beginning, but he's consistently covering us and hovering over us and recreating us and making us new. He convicts us. He illuminates us. He gives us joy in the truth. He's constantly shaping and changing us and thus saving us. When David prays in Psalm 51, he prays, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. What he's afraid of is that God would stop this recreative process in him the way that he did in Saul. Remember, the spirit did depart from Saul. God stopped his work there with Saul. And so David cries out and says, I need the spirit to continue working on me, wrestle with me, recreate me, and continue to bring me closer in my walk with you, Lord. Don't strand me here. Keep working on me and keep me moving. And that's all of our prayer, that, that the, the spirit keeps moving us toward the goal of the, of the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be conformed to the likeness of our Lord Jesus, and that all the earth would have communion and union with him. And so that's the last thing I want to look at. The Holy Spirit makes all things one. He makes all things alive. He makes all things real. He makes all things new. He makes all things one. The Holy Spirit is the great unifier. The Holy Spirit is the glue that holds relationships together where we are splintered and divisive and schismatic, where we're always pulling apart we're always divorcing ourselves from the body. We're, we're moving away off to ourselves, removing ourselves from friendships and relationships and family, off creating our own hell all by ourselves. The Spirit is, is the one who binds up 
what is separated by sin. He heals what is broken. He fuses together that which has been splintered. You know Ephesians 4, but listen to it again. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul, he says, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the work of the spirit, the, the work of the unifying spirit in bringing all things together under the lordship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of unity and brotherhood. He is the spirit of union and communion. There is no unity. There is no lasting friendship. There is no brotherhood of man apart from God's Holy Spirit. All, all the nations and all of the councils and all of the conspiracies and all of those who try to get together to work things out, it, it's short-lived. Every single one of their efforts is short-lived. They're building towers of Babel that are they're going to be smashed and it's all going to be divided because whatever sin builds up comes crashing to the ground. It is the Spirit who unites men it is the spirit who unites families. It is the spirit who holds society together because it is the spirit who unites us to Jesus. He brings us into fellowship with the son and the father. He, the spirit, brings us into friendship with each other. Where you resist the fellowship of the saints, you resist the spirit and you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So in all these ways, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know how he acts and how he thinks, you have to know him by his son who is revealed to us by the power of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only source of life. He is the only access to reality that we have. He is the only, he is the only one who can refresh us and bring unity. You either have the Holy Spirit in you, with you, around you, in the community of the spirit, you either have the spirit or you are locked into a death spiral into the past, into paganism, into darkness. The spirit moves us forward, not backward. God has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can be, you and I can be the first fruits of his new creation. We are the agents of his work in the world. So through us, not only does he give life, not only does he bring reality and recreation and brotherhood, but he brings it through us. Through us, he brings life and truth and recreation and brotherhood. And he brings it to the world through us. This all happens through us because this has all happened to us. He is the fire and he is the mighty wind that searches us out and burns and sweeps out our lives. He is the dove that hovers over us and broods over us. This, people of God, is how the spirit is present and active in the church and continues his work today. Let us give thanks. Father, we praise you for the work of your Holy Spirit. And on this day, we especially rejoice in the work of your Holy Spirit. May we never resist his work in us and among us, but may we delight in the way that he convicts and leads and, and guides us into truth. We pray for wisdom 
And we pray for clarity. May we listen to where you are speaking to us by your spirit, through your word, uh, the words of your son. So Father, uh, we pray that our worship would be acceptable to you today as it is worship in, in the spirit. Uh, we pray that you would never stop wrestling with us, never stop brooding over us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.